Good morning. In the fall of 2019, there was a thought by the leadership of the year 2020 is coming and what are we going to do by way of a theme? And Jerry mentioned yesterday that the, the congregation where he preached uh, went with a theme that a lot of congregations went with, and that is uh, 2020 vision and how important that is. We thought maybe that a lot of folks were doing that, not to be different arbitrarily, but to think a little uh, outside of the box as to how to approach uh, not just a theme for the year, but an emphasis uh, for the congregation. And what the elders uh, decided on was the idea of growing together. Coming directly from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 16, the first part of the epistle of Ephesians, looking at the great gift that God gave for us and how amazingly blessed that we are as his children. The second half of the letter is really where the heart of the matter is. Paul tells us what the purpose of the letter is in Ephesians 4 and verse 1, and it points to the behavior that needs to take place in the local body of believers. Ephesians exalts the church of the Christ, and in doing so, it shows us how God wants us to be as a people. That's bigger than one year's theme. And so you'll notice there were banners that were made that in so much of what we have said and emphasized, it revolves around us growing together. In the middle of the pandemic, when leadership all over the country was facing an unprecedented crisis of how to handle something that no, no training has given leadership the ability to, to try and navigate. And I mean that in any institution the elders in the middle of that began audaciously a strategic plan. A vision is something that looks at what is not but what could be. And to do so requires faith. So often what we, we do and what we plan is based on what we can see and what we can produce. And that falls woefully short of what God intends for us as a people. From the time the church was established, he intended for... the the church to turn the world upside down, and the first century church did. It requires faith-filled decisions. And as we looked through what God wanted us to do as a people, the elders drafted a vision statement that Lehman Avenue is an authentic, growing family that is seeking to empower our community to obey God and to go to heaven. The mission statement was already drafted 2,000 years ago from the lips of our Savior in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And out of that, we have our marching orders. You heard it in Derek's prayer this morning that we are seeking to reach Warren County, Kentucky, and the rest of the world. In the casting of that vision, so many things have, have gone into that. And our elders are to be encouraged and to be commended and to be praised for their stepping outside of the box in so many different ways. Yesterday was an example of that. With the seminar that took place, that was a tangible way for us to let the community know that we are here, that we love them and we serve them. And this church family together came together. So many people, I don't know what good's going to come. We are indebted to you, Jerry, for the seminar that you uh, conducted yesterday. Several congregations, people from the community were represented, and we are blessed because of that. I don't know how eternity will be altered because of that event, and we are so appreciative to FCA for allowing us to use their facilities. 
One of the decisions that was made in that in looking to the future was the opportunity to have Hiram Kemp and his family to come and work with us in this congregation. We are excited that this is the first sermon of Hiram's tenure and time with us here at the Lehman Avenue Church of Christ. Let me tell you just a little bit about Hiram because Hiram is a humble man who's not going to tell you these things himself. He is much accomplished to be so young. I Somebody asked me yesterday, somebody on this row right here asked me how old he was. I said 30, and they reproached me. They said, no, I think he's 31, fixing to turn 32. I stand corrected there. But he has undergraduate degrees in criminal justice and education. He has advanced degrees in Bible from Fried Hardeman and is in his Ph.D. program at Midwestern Theological Seminary. That doesn't begin to define who Hiram is. Hiram is a devoted father and husband. He is a true and humble disciple of Jesus Christ. I may have mentioned on Sunday night after the announcement was made on Sunday morning that in speaking with one of his elders who I have known for some time, the director of the Florida School of Preaching, he said, you know, what he does on Sunday is pretty good, but it's who he is Monday through Saturday that makes him so special. We're grateful to have Hiram and Brittany and Nadia and Andre here with us, not to embarrass them, but they're sitting right in the very center of the congregation, right next to the Simpsons, and we're looking forward to Hiram as he preaches God's word to us right now. Good morning. Grateful to see everyone this morning, and my family and I are looking forward to being able to be here with you and work with you. We've been able to make the trip. It's been a lot of bumps in the road with travel and those sorts of things, but we're glad that we have finally come to Kentucky, and as has already been mentioned, we look forward to working with you both now and in the future to reach the world, but specifically Warren County and Kentucky with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We really do look forward to being your teammates and working together with you, getting to know all of you course of the next several months and days and years, and we just appreciate your warm welcome, all of the prayers that have been prayed, all of the foresight that has gone into this decision, and we're excited to begin working with you. The identity of Jesus has always been something that has brought much confusion and much doubt and speculation and question in the minds of individuals that were around him and during his earthly ministry, even from before about who he was because his mother had conceived though she wasn't married. Matthew 1 and verse 19. There were questions surrounding who he possibly could be as individuals in and around Palestine in the first century had doubts and questions, various ideas about just who Jesus of Nazareth could be. In John 1, 46, Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? When he began to perform miracles in and around his hometown in Matthew 13, 54 and 55, they said, how can he do these things seeing that he's never been trained? Pilate said, are you a king in John 18 and John seven during the feast of the town? Is this the prophet John seven and verse 40 and some in the next verse said it couldn't be because he came from the area in and around Galilee. Jesus has always been misunderstood. People have always had questions about who he is and what he came to do and what he would be like. In John chapter 8, in the text that was read for us for our scripture reading, Jesus is in a broad controversy with some of his most intense enemies in his earthly ministry. And they have this back and forth as Jesus tells them, if you don't believe on me, 
I'm going. You cannot come. And he begins to describe them who he is. And in John 8 and verse 25, they just come right out and ask him, who are you? And He says, the one that I've told you from the beginning. And that still puzzled them because they, many people today, they just couldn't consistently put all of the Old Testament passages together that told people about who Jesus was and his identity and the things that he came to do. Sure, they knew a few prophecies and they knew a few passages, but they couldn't with consistency put the picture together and they struggled. If you were to ask people today, Christians today, who is Jesus? You might get a myriad of various answers. I suppose if you were to go to a Christian and say, Jesus is, fill in the blank, what would you put in? Just like Jesus, everything and as comprehensive as that is, maybe that's not specific enough to tell us just exactly who he is. And we may zero in on one of the facets of Jesus's identity, but we do so to our own detriment. We may find a Jesus who we love and worship and adore. If it's not the comprehensive picture of who scripture says that he is, we sell ourselves and the Jesus of the Bible short. What I want to do this morning is just briefly walk through seven of the things that the New Testament tells us concerning the identity of who Jesus is. These will be right out of the New Testament as Jesus describes himself to us through the pages of inspiration. And as we allow God to make up our minds about who his son is. Now, normally we like to preach expositorily and go verse by verse through a passage. But there are certain subjects that demand that we canvas the scope of scripture and allow God to tell us the complete picture of who his son is. And so let us begin. Number one. Who is Jesus? Jesus is our Lord and Jesus is our God. You know, some people, they wouldn't phrase it like this. They wouldn't say it with their mouths. But their idea of Jesus is nothing more than a spiritual errand boy of sorts. They want someone who they could just fold up and put in their pocket and who will tell them that everything they do is okay and approved and that God honors it. I, like you, have talked to people who have said, you know what, I'm not really doing what God wants me to do. My life is not really in line or in step with what Jesus says in this New Testament. But I am sure that Jesus approves of me. I'm sure that Jesus is okay with the things that I'm doing in the way that I'm living. And that's because many people don't have the biblical picture of who Jesus is. He's more than that. He's larger than life. He's God. In fact, that's how John opens his gospel. The prologue begins with, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. And the word was God. And he goes on to describe who the word is and who it represents. And that is Jesus. John chapter 20 is Jesus appears post resurrection. And Thomas was absent initially. When it proved tangible was and is risen from the dead. And as Jesus approaches him, he says, touch me and feel and put your hand here and see. I'm not dead, but I am alive. It is really me. And in John 20. 28, Thomas makes a statement that is packed, that must be unpacked and digested by every one of us. Notice what he says in verse 28. He says concerning Jesus, my Lord and my God. The first thing to appreciate about Jesus is this reality, that he is both our Lord and he's our God. Jesus is not some lower level angel who was exalted to a position of deity after a flawless earthly performance. He's not even God the second. He's not God junior. He's just simply God. And more than he's been God. Any picture or view of Jesus that is less than is too small. Appreciate the New Testament passages that just highlight this reality. He's called the blessed God forever. Romans 9, 15. Our great God and Savior. Titus 2 and verse 13. Matthew begins by saying, is God with us? Matthew 1, 23 through 25. He's the image of the 
visible God, Colossians 1.15, and the exact representation of who God is, Hebrews 1 and verse 3. The New Testament shouts out loud that Jesus, yes, is fully human, but he is also divine. He is everything that every member of the triune God is. That is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus says, that's who I am. And Thomas exclaims that. And if we would have a biblical picture of him, we must accept the same. But not only that, he is our Lord and our God. What does the New Testament mean when it says Jesus is our Lord? It means that he's our master. He's the one who's in charge. It means in his presence, we don't boast, we bow because of who he is. He has a name that is exalted above every name, that at the very name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess things in heaven and in earth. Why? Because he runs the universe. He's always been. Colossians 3.17, a verse that's familiar to us. We even have it set to music. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God and the Father through him. Because Jesus is truly in charge, not only in spiritual matters, but in all of earthly affairs. Because he's Lord. The first thing to appreciate about Jesus, if we're going to have a biblical picture of who he is, is that he is our Lord and our God. It is from this that everything else flows. It is from this that he can command and direct and dictate our steps. And we must do nothing else but submit and obey because we appreciate who he is. A failure to appreciate this point makes everything else about Jesus foggy and hard to digest. But if we see what Thomas saw, that he really is Lord and God, the sovereign one. It's from this that our hearts are drawn to his and we fall deeply in love with him. But number two, Jesus is our hope. When Paul begins the book of First Timothy, like he does in so many of his letters, he signs them at the beginning, as was customary in his day. But in First Timothy one and verse one, Paul says he's Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our savior and Christ Jesus, which is our hope. Paul begins by saying his apostolic authority has come from God himself. And then he says from Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Jesus isn't just the one that we have our hope in, but he is our hope itself. Now, the way that we use the word hope, or maybe that most people use the word hope, is more like unto wishful thinking. You know, you leave McDonald's and you hope they drop some extra fries in the bag. (laughs) Or maybe you say, look, I really hope I passed this test that I didn't study for or put enough attention into. Or I've got great plans for the outdoors today. And I really hope it doesn't rain. When we say hope, sometimes what we mean is wishful thinking. That is not the way the word is used in the New Testament. When you and I read hope in our New Testament, the word is like unto this idea. It actually means this. It's a confident expectation of that which we believe will be fulfilled. We hope, we are assured, we are confident that this will happen based on prior evidence or relationship with the one and who we put our trust and our hope. You could just read the New Testament through. And when you read verses that say things like heaven, our hope is laid up in heaven. Colossians one and verse five. Or we have an anchor that we're tethered to the hope. Hebrews six, 18 through 20. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You could interchange many of the verses in the New Testament where the word hope is inserted. Put Jesus's name into the context and do no damage to the passage because he is the one in whom we have our confident expectation, our trust because of who he is. Christ is our hope. Many people in the first century understood this. And some people, they didn't get it, but other people did. And when they saw Jesus, they realized, here's my one chance. And if my situation or circumstances will ever be improved, I just have to get to him. So Bartimaeus is outside of the city in Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 48. And he's embarrassing the people. They would really rather him be quiet, but he just can't. He can't see, but he can hear. And he knows there is Jesus of Nazareth. If I will ever see. It's my only hope. 
Son of David, have mercy on me. He cries out. You know why? Because he says, there's my hope in flesh and blood. The man that had been there at the pool for 38 years. John chapter 5 tells us, verses 6 through 8. When he saw Jesus, Jesus says, would you be made whole? He says, I have no man. When the water stirred, notice that. I have no one, no man, no one else, no hope. Jesus, will you help me? It's the woman bursting through the crowd in Mark chapter 5. And she says internally, though Mark discloses her thoughts to us. Mark 5 and verse 28. If I could just touch his clothes, I know I'll be made whole. What is that? She says what every right thinking person in the world realizes. He's my only hope. And what people said that interacted with Jesus in the flesh is what we say, though thousands of years removed, whatever my circumstances may be, if I could just get to him, if I could just encounter Jesus, things will be changed and I can have hope. Everybody everywhere puts their hope in someone or in something. T.S. Eliot said we should not put our hope in things unseen so that we won't be disappointed. Nothing could be further from the truth. Christians know better. Jesus won't just resurrect our bodies. He often resurrects our situations in our life. There is hope because Jesus is alive. Because I live, you will too, John 14 and verse 19. And when we read of hope in the Bible, it is something that we both expect to realize in the future, but which we currently possess because Jesus is present in our lives. And so that means there's hope for raising difficult children. There is. There's hope for marriages that may be struggling. There's hope in waiting rooms when the individuals with the white lab coats say we've done all that we could do. We don't know what's going to happen as we await the results in those quiet gaps, in those moments. Even then, Christians know better than to despair or give up. And so Romans 12 and verse 12, Paul says rejoicing in hope, even in a world where we've often had our hopes dashed and crushed. And so we're fearful about getting our hopes up. And we say we think of worst case scenarios. Christians know better. Jesus is our hope. It's in him that we can confidently expect that for us, no matter what happens, the best days are yet to come. Jesus is our hope and he gives us confidence to have hope, but that's only for the Christian. Paul would speak of us before we became Christians in Ephesians 2 and verse 12. And he says, at that time, you were without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And if we would have the hope that Paul describes and that the rest of the New Testament shouts out loud to us is to the degree that we lay hold on Jesus in the biblical way that he says that we should. And when we do that, we have no reason to be ashamed because the hope that we have in Jesus, though unseen to the present world, Romans 8, 24, we can confidently trust will be realized in the last day. Number three, Jesus is our life. In Colossians chapter three, Paul says that Christ, when Christ, who is our life, will appear, then we also will appear with him in glory. Now, this is just after in verse three, Paul has said that we are dead with Christ to the things of this world. For you have died and your life is here with Christ in God. But then when Christ, who is our life, will appear, we'll also appear with him in glory. What does Paul mean when he says Christ is our life? He means at least two things. One for everyone, whether Christian or agnostic or unbeliever, Jesus is our life. It is in him that we live and move and have our being, whether we give him credit for that or not. Everyone who draws breath draws on the breath that Jesus loans them. Everyone that has lungs and that breathes his air, drinks his water, eats his food, and him was life, and that life was the light of men, John 1 and verse 4. Everyone who exists owes that to the God in heaven, namely Jesus, who created us and allows it to be so. He upholds the very word world by the word of his power. Hebrews 1 and verse 3. The world continues to spin. You and I don't duck at night that the stars will fall on us and clunk us in our heads. Because Jesus upholds it by the word of his power. He's in control of the universe. In him we have life. But Paul means more than that. In Colossians 3. 
what Paul means when he says about us that Christ is our life. He is not just the means by which we exist, but the very reason for our existence. We live for and through him. Sometimes you see people doing things. You see Michael Jordan dribble a basketball, Serena Williams swing a tennis racket, Van Gogh use the paintbrush. You read of Einstein's discussion about physics and you say, now they are doing what they were born to do. Nobody else could do what they're doing the way that they're doing it. Paul says Christ is our life. When you see Christians walk in the light and love one another and have fellowship one with another, we are doing the very thing we were created to do. Isaiah 43 and verse 7, we were created for his glory. It is right for us to live to the glory of God and then after that to go to glory with God. Christ is our life. He's our reason, our motivation for living. And it's in him that we live and move and have our being. He's our motivation for doing the things that we do. Psalm 16 and verse 2 says that apart from him, we have no good thing. That is, our lives are bound up in who Jesus is. He gives us a reason for living and a hope for dying when this life is over. Our lives are swallowed up in who Jesus is. Number four, Jesus is our friend. Two times in the Old Testament, it's said about Abraham that he's the friend of God. Isaiah 41 and verse 8, 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 7. And though the Old Testament is filled with terminology and language, which shows us that ancient Israel, they were the covenant people of God. They enjoyed a unique relationship with God. This terminology about individuals being friends and close with God is foreign to the Old Testament. In fact, it's only said of Abraham and really no one else throughout the Old Testament. Aristotle, the famous Greek philosopher, said a man cannot be friends with his God any more than he can be friends with his slave or with his property because the two things are too dissimilar one to another. And then Jesus comes on the scene. John 1 and verse 14, the word was made flesh and tabernacled or dwelt among us. And yes, he's our Lord. He's our God. He's our king, our creator. But appreciate the fact that Jesus is also our friend. In John 15 and verse 13, he says, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. In the next verse, he says, you are my friends, John 15, 14. If you do whatever I command you, Jesus says, we are not just individuals who are subjects in the kingdom, but we are friends. That reign and serve and work alongside Jesus. It's hard for our minds to comprehend this idea that Jesus, who is larger than life, comes alongside us. And he says, yes, I'm your king. Yes, I'm your master. But you and I also can be friends. Who's the best friend you have? Your best earthly friend. And what do you look for in those friends? The individual that you would say, I connect with this person greater than anybody else in the world. What would you say? You would say things like this. They make me better. Iron sharpens iron, Proverbs 27 and verse 17. But nobody's made us any better than Jesus. He's transformed us and made us new creatures. You say, this friend, this person, they are individuals that correct me when I do wrong. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, Proverbs 27 and verse 6. Jesus loves every individual who he rebukes and disciplines. You say, my best friend in the world is an individual who has walked with me through the valleys of life. A brother is born for adversity. A friend loves at all times. A brother is born for adversity. Proverbs 17, 17. And Jesus walked with us literally through the shadow of death. He took it on for us. He's the best friend we could ever have. And if we're his friends, we want to do what pleases him. If you love me, keep my commandments, John 14, 15. If we say that we know him and we don't keep his commandments, we deceive ourselves. We lie and we disobey the truth. 1 John 2, 3 through 5. Jesus is our friend. And sometimes on this earth, There are disagreements with friends, aren't there? Harsh disagreements where individuals who are as close as could be, they don't speak for a long period of time. There's this separation. 
And they don't. And somebody says, I didn't know you felt that way. I didn't know that was what you had inside of you. And there's this great separation. How do you fix it? One could hope or imagine that the individual that had done the wrong will come across the fence to the other and say, listen, I'm so sorry you and I are too close to have let this ruptured our relationship and our friendship. When you and I disrespected God and ruined the friendship in ways we never thought that we would, we, the guilty party, should have been the individuals that went across the fence first. Isn't that right? We should have been the ones that said, listen, we've messed up and we really would like to reconcile. But notice that God came across the clouds for you and me. We wouldn't have gone to him. He knew that. And so he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Second Corinthians five twenty one It's what Paul means when he says this is the ministry of reconciliation. Second Corinthians five nineteen and 20 to make friends again because we've messed up. But Jesus died on our behalf to make us friends again with God. Joseph Scriven is his name. He was born in 1819. His life was filled with sorrow, tragedy, heartache, but yet hope. He wanted to join the military like his father, but because of ill health, he just never could. And so he decided he would just go to college instead and have a profession and live a successful life. And he graduated from college in 1842. He was set to be married shortly thereafter, except for the tragedy that struck when his then fiance died the night before the wedding in a tragic drowning accident. He recovered. He was engaged again to be married. And this time his second fiance died just weeks before the wedding. And near the end of his earthly life, in 1855, his mother was ill and she was in far off Dublin. He couldn't reach her. He had lost two fiancés. He could never join the military. He had lost seemingly everything. And now in his mother's greatest hour of need, he'd never be there for her. And he wrote these words. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. A man whose life seemed to be robbed from the providence of God who seemed to have just sorrow after sorrow, heartache after heartache, he got this point. Number four about Jesus. Jesus, no matter what happens, he's a friend. Number five, Jesus is our judge. A lot of people don't like this, but you know in our country, you could be called on at random to go to jury duty. And if you don't go, there could be consequences. Maybe you'll never be called, and that's what we hope. I've never been called. But if you are, you need to go. And in that moment, as you serve as a juror, depending on the type of case that it'll be, you'll be a part of the individuals that are handing down the decision after hearing the evidence. The judgment day when every individual will stand before God will not be that way. You and I won't be jurors that will be rendering a verdict or a decision. We will be individuals that will be judged. And Jesus Christ himself, our judge, our king and our savior will do the judging. That will either make us shudder or shout, depending on what state we're in. If everything we've said so far has been appreciated and drunken in by us as disciples of Jesus, this is the greatest news in the world. No one knows us better. No one loves us more. The best friend in the world who couldn't sin against us says, one day I'll judge you in righteousness. We may have been misrepresented in our lives, misunderstood, but Jesus will judge us. The father judges no man, but he's committed all judgment to the son. John 5 and verse 22 He that rejects me and receives not my words has one that judges him. The words that I've spoken, the same, will judge you in the last day. John 12 and verse 48. Jesus will judge the world. And many people who have sort of boxed Jesus in merely as a spiritual advisor of sorts or a counselor who renders no verdicts, who challenges no one, will be surprised on the day of judgment to find out that they stand before the judge of all the earth. There's this common concept in prison systems called jailhouse lawyers. 
And these are individuals who haven't really been trained in law, but because of their current circumstances, maybe they've studied or read up on a few things, and they may find themselves throughout the prison giving other individuals advice and giving other individuals tips on what they should do in their cases. And while sometimes helpful, you could appreciate why that's problematic. First of all, they're giving information about laws that they're probably incarcerated for breaking. But more importantly, they know very little about the law. You know, you and I, as we think about eternity and one day standing before the judgment by of God, we would do well to take it from the individual who won't be in line at judgment, but that will be at the head of the line. The one that will do the judging. There are a lot of spiritual jailhouse lawyers, so to, so to speak, that say, you know what? God doesn't really care about this. And God's not as serious about that as you've heard. And God doesn't really care about that. I really wouldn't want to hear that from somebody who's going to be in line in judgment. I want to hear from the one who says one day. Everybody in the world will stand before me. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to what he's done, whether good or evil. Second Corinthians five and verse 10 for the Christians. This is great news. There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. As we think about judgment, we don't cringe. We smile and cry out. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Romans eight and verse one. But for those who haven't obeyed the gospel. For those that are lukewarm or unfaithful who forsaken their first love, this reality that Jesus is our judge should make us tremble with terror as we will one day stand before the one who died for our sins, but who can't forgive that which we won't turn away from. The Bible says Jesus is more than our God. He's our Lord. He's also our judge. Two more. Number six, Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. Now, the old King James has this as the author and finisher. Every other translation renders this the author and the perfecter. And that's probably more accurate. The new King James has this in a footnote. But it means that Jesus is the one that begins our faith and he's the one that completes it. If Christianity were a relay race, he runs the first and the last leg. He brings it all around to its completion. Jesus is the one who is where our faith and focus should ultimately be. Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. As the Hebrew writer tells us, all of these individuals in Hebrews 11 have suffered. And by faith, this individual had done this. And by faith, Abraham and Isaac and Sarah and Joseph and Moses. But then he says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the completer, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. And it's sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the one who our faith is all about. I know this is elementary, but I often need to remind myself of this one reality. In the end, Christianity is about being more and more like Jesus. Every one of us has our favorite Christian or an individual who we look up to. But in the grand scheme of things, Christianity is not about being like our favorite Christian or individuals who we may look up to and esteem. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. The way you and I must make decisions as the people of God is through this lens. Will this please God? Would Jesus do this? Would Jesus want me to do this? Would he want me to pass up this opportunity? Because whether absent or present, we make it our aim, our goal to please him. Second Corinthians five and verse nine. Here's the question. If it is our aim and goal to please him, are we hitting the target? Are we hitting what we're striving for and aiming at? Jesus is the one that our faith revolves around, but it's the one he's the one our life points to as he's the one who has begun our faith and the one that will perfect it in the end. Seventh and finally, Jesus is our savior. Whatever else is missed in this incomprehensive list, you couldn't have a list like this one without the reality of Jesus being described as our savior. His very name necessitates this point. Jesus, his name means Yahweh saves or God saves. Matthew 1 and verse 21. You'll call his name Jesus. He'll save his people from their sins. If Jesus does anything, he saves. 
Now, maybe you've seen this in life already. Individuals saved or rescued. Maybe someone's airway is blocked and you've seen it where somebody has rushed in and lodged a piece of bacon that was about to send someone to their eternal reward. Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you've been out in the ocean and someone got out too far, too fast, and you've seen somebody be rescued and be saved. Maybe financial peril or just hardship is coming. An individual says, I don't know how I'm going to make it, how I'm going to make ends meet. And somebody comes along and they rescue. They say, well, here's the money. Here's what you need. And they save. Every time we see that happen, in smaller degrees, we see what Jesus has done for every one of us. We need it to be rescued. We need it to be saved. We need someone to step in and do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Jesus is our Savior. In Philippians 3 and verse 20. Paul talks about the citizenship that we have. Our conversation is in heaven from where also we look for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will change our vow or our lowly body that it might be fashioned like his glorious body, according to the working whereby he's able even to subdue all things to himself. Paul says Jesus is the one who will rescue us in the end. And so keep your eyes heavenward because he's the one that will make the difference. Notice the New Testament says that Jesus is the Savior of all of those who believe. First Timothy four and verse ten. He's the savior of all of those who call on his name. Acts 2, 21, Acts 22, 16. He's the savior of the body. Ephesians 5, 23. Who will Jesus save? Those who believe on him. Those who have biblically called on his name. Those who are members of his body. Jesus is the savior. That's correct. But not anyone, everyone at large, apart from his will. But those who believe the way that the Bible describes biblical belief, those who call on his name, make the heavenly appeal in the way that it's outlined in the New Testament. And those that have united themselves with him in his body as they've obeyed the gospel and been adopted as sons and daughters and inserted into the family of God. Jesus wants to save everybody in the world, but we have to want to be saved as bad as he wants to save us. Who is Jesus? In the first century, people were confused about his identity. They said in John 8 and verse 25, who are you? Jesus said, I'm exactly who I've been telling you. I am from the very beginning. If you would just look close enough, you would see me as I truly am. He gave signs. He did miracles. He fulfilled prophecy. He preached sermons. But to the individuals who refused to look, who stubbornly denied this great reality, there would never be enough miracles. There would never be enough signs to convince them of this great reality. And then he allowed his word to be preserved. It's been translated into a language that each of us can read, comprehend, and understand. We've been given individuals who can teach and instruct us. And yet, people still wonder, who is Jesus? He's our Lord. He's our God. He's our friend. And today, he wants to be your Savior. Maybe you need to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to come to the reality and believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It's who he is. It's who God said that he is when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration and when he rose from the waters of baptism in Matthew 3.17. That belief causes individuals to turn and to repent, to say, I want to change my mind and allow it to be evidenced by the behavior that I manifest thereafter. Confessing with the mouth what the heart has already believed, he is the Son of God. Allowing your body to be immersed in water, to be baptized literally into a relationship with the Godhead. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19. And then to rise, to walk in the newness of life. And one day to meet your Savior, Lord, God, friend and judge face to face, not in shuddering terror, but in screeching delight. There he is, the one who lived the life I should have lived and died the death that I deserve to die. And he'll welcome us home. Maybe you've been studying the gospel with someone here and we can help you to do that. We love to witness your obedience to the gospel. Maybe you need the prayers of the church. 
Jesus is our friend in times of adversity. And if you need the prayers of the brethren here, we'd be happy to pray with you and pray for you. We're going to extend the invitation as is our custom and stand and sing this song. If we can help you, come now as together we stand and as we sing.